Welcome to It's Time to Lead podcast, where leaders come together to grow and get better. I'm your host, Fred Fitzgerald, the mindset money coach, ready to invest in you so you can have a positive return with more value, influence, and impact with your people. We believe that before you can lead others, you must first lead yourself. So on this podcast, we focus on self-leadership. And I am just so excited you guys are with us today as our topic is leading through a crisis. And my special guest that I have on today is a gentleman who I've been following online uh, on Facebook. And uh, just just so glad to have a, a gentleman who is a leader. He's a senior pastor at Crystal Fountain Missionary Baptist Church. He also studied at Andersonville Theological Seminary, and he lives in the area of Phoenix, Arizona. And I'm glad to have him on. From my side of the country to his side of the country, I want you guys to welcome Pastor Otley W. Holmes. Welcome to the show, my friend. Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. I thank you so much for being on. So why don't you do me a favor and tell the people a little bit about your little background, how you, how you even got started uh, in ministry. Well, I'm a native New Yorker. Um, and when I lived back there, I wasn't really in the church. And uh, moved out to uh, Phoenix, and I've been out here about 44 years now. And early on, uh, when I was working for a computer company, uh, my supervisor actually had witnessed to me, and I was saved and baptized in a large Southern Baptist church. And shortly thereafter, the Lord really started to prick my heart. I never, in my family, I didn't have any deacons or pastors. I didn't have any kind of that, any kind of that uh, background and but the Lord has called me and worked with me and so uh, I went from that large church to a smaller church on the south side of Phoenix where I announced my call and uh, in 1987 I was licensed to preach and in 1989 I was ordained um, then I uh, served there at that church for many years, and then I was called the pastor of my first church uh, over at Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church, where I pastored there about 17 years. Nice. I thought I was going to step back for a while, but the Lord kind of kept bugging me. <laughs> my ex-members kept saying, well, pastor, why don't you start a church? And I always told my membership that if I ever started the church, you could best believe that it's the Lord that's been prodding me to do it because I don't just go out and start something to start something. So I took about a year off and uh, prayed about it. And so um, it was July 2nd, 2014, that we organized uh, Crystal Fountain and I've been there uh, ever since. That's I great. do have a radio program that I do on Sunday afternoons. It's and you know, Fred, I don't have to tell you, sometimes those types of things are a struggle with your consistent sponsorship. Absolutely, man. Thank God for my membership. Yes, sir. Uh, I've recently, I've been into uh, podcasting also. So uh, that's that's about my story, you know. And, and uh, I just always had a love for people. I've always been an observer of people. And the Lord has just used my various life experiences where I thought was just kind of going around the circle sometimes because yeah. I had many different careers. I, I started out in high school as a baker and then I, I was a, a truck driver for a while. I was a, a mechanic and I was a machinist and I moved out here, went to work for a computer company. I started out in security, wound up in management and uh, 
Then I had my own uh, business for about seven and a half years and then went into ministry full time. Wow. Well, that is that is a mess. That's an incredible background. You remind me of me because uh, I got started uh, in, in the restaurant business. I always brag about uh, at 13 years old, I, I worked for a, a, a multi-billion dollar company. It's my that's my big bragging rights at 13 years old. And I learned I learned a lot uh, with that company. I learned about team management. I learned about um, you know how to work with people. I learned how to lead. I learned how to count money. But the biggest thing I learned, I learned how to make a mean Big Mac. I learned how to make them fries. I learned how to make them shakes. <laughs> so that's my billion dollar company I used to work for. But I, I kind of used it, right? <laughs> but yeah, you remind me. I kind of, kind of got started in the restaurant business myself, and uh, and, and kind of worked a lot of times. And every single time, I was always trying to get better. Um, so who, 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 who influenced you the most when you were young? I think my my dad did. He he and I, in fact, his sister when she was alive used to say we were more like brothers than fathers and sons. Wow. And then uh, his his mom, my my grandmother, always used to kind of have. I thought at that time was somewhat of a negative prodding, mm -hmm. but she used to say that you have more greater matter than you're willing to use. And I mm. used to say what. You know, yeah. <laughs> but then uh, as I got older, I, I found out exactly what the meaning of her prodding meant. And, and so, uh, you know, I've, I've just um, had that close relationship with my dad. I could always talk to him about anything. Mm -hmm. And he always used to never push me, but just always prodded me to do the best that I could. And so, you know, I've, I've had many different influences in my life, um, it's kind of hard to nail them down. More than likely, it was my father. He, I think, he had a lot to do uh, with the shaping of my uh, worldview. Yeah. Um, my mom, unfortunately, was was ill from the time I was about in sixth grade. Okay. Uh, both of them now have gone on to be with the Lord, and and so many times, you know, late at night, I always reflect back on some of those uh, upbringings. My mom was one one of them a very, very special woman. Uh, unfortunately, she had some mental uh, problems, but she was uh, an ideal housewife. Mm. And uh, let me tell you, when I uh, was coming up, it was really hard uh, to be able to adjust to others because yeah. Yeah. nobody did it like mom. Like mom. <laughs> right, exactly. She said a high <laughs> bar. They just said a high bar. This Yes, sir. <laughs> and when I tell people, they start laughing. They said, "Are you kidding me?" I said, "No." I said, "My mom used to iron my underwear." <laughs> mm -hmm. My goodness, and you, and I thought that it, was the norm. <laughs> <laughs> and if you can't do that, you don't qualify. <laughs> so I, I was had a rude awakening. Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> can't put that expectation on everybody, can you? <laughs> <laughs> So I've always used those life's experiences when I sit in, in counsel with with uh, people at the church. You know, I'm saying, look, we all had different life's experiences. We've come up different ways. And I said, and unfortunately, if we're not aware of them. We uh, have a tendency to project what we think life would have run like yeah. on others. And then when they don't meet that expectation then all of a sudden there's a lot of friction mm -hmm. yes yes absolutely what were um what were three values that that you remember that your that your dad kind of 
made sure that, that he taught you that, 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 that you can remember. That was important. To treat others as I wanted to be treated. I, I never, to be honest with you, Fred, I had a hard time um, with racism. Okay. Yep. Because I was exposed to it, but I guess I had a hard time because the lack thereof. Yeah. Uh, when I was was young, um, I lived in uh, Corona, Queens. Okay. And the neighborhood that I lived in was a mixed neighborhood, and uh, I was the youngest on the block. So all the mm. kids used to be. I, my mom didn't have to worry about me. I I had a block full of babysitters. You know. <laughs> yeah. So sure. I, I never, yeah, I never saw color. Yeah, yeah, because it was a mixed neighborhood yep. and everybody got along. Everybody were blue collar workers, you know, and everybody was was trying to survive and, you know, go through life and was strong family course. I never had that type of exposure until later on in life. Wow. And then uh, it was kind of a wake up call, you know, because I never and that's what my parents told me. I, I, I looked at like. Like Dr. King says, I looked at the content of their character, yes. not the color of the skin, you know. Yes. And so uh, it, it still bothers me greatly, but more since I've gotten older, it, it almost angers me at times. I have to pray sometimes because to me, it is so senseless yeah. to judge somebody off of the color of their skin when you don't know anything about them. Mm-hmm. That's the truth. That, that's one of the things he, he you know, basically taught me my that was part of my family structure mm-hmm. was to treat others the way you wanted to be treated and right. don't see color, see character. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I um I was brought up, you know, I was messed up when I saw Roots. <laughs> I was okay. <laughs> I was okay up until I was eight years. I was born in nineteen seventy, so it was right. You know, during that time. And next thing you know, I saw Roots, and my dad just said, watch this because it's important. And I, I went to school that next day in fourth grade. I was nothing nice. I, <laughs> I, was, I was looking at everybody crazy, right? Teacher and everybody. <laughs> and and uh, so it's, that's interesting. But, uh, you know, the bottom line is, you know, that's the golden rule, uh, you know, to treat others like you want to be treated. And in, 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 in New York, I mean, we're, it's a melting pot. So, of course. You know, I, think I know. You know that, that was that, that was the thing. You know, we just saw people as people. You know, yeah. you either got along with somebody or you didn't get along with them. Right. But it was never mostly about color. Yeah, it was more about attitudes and and you know uh, things like that. But it was never really founded basically just off of color. Yeah, and I knew yeah. I wasn't I wasn't naive. I knew that existed. You know, because I mean it wasn't too far from me, but early on in my life, I didn't have to have those heavy type of experiences. Mm-hmm. In fact, to be honest with you, sometimes as I've gotten older, I feel like I got cheated. Yeah. You know, because, <laughs> because sometimes when I hear about some of the things people have gone through, especially like in the deep south and segregation, yes. you know, I, I can't, I can, I can sympathize with it, but I can't and empathize can, with it. Yeah. I never had it heavy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've you actually don't have to worry about walking down the sidewalk and looking at somebody without being threatened. You know, it, you know, just I saw. I I always felt like I had to play catch up. You know, like yeah. when you get in the elevator and and you see women clutching their purses. I never used to pay attention to that until I got educated on. Mm, that is something. It's almost like you couldn't connect. Right, right. For a long time, I, you know, until like I said, and and. Uh, even when I was in in the uh, in the army, I remember we were sitting around in the barracks, and 
Uh, I was my CO's driver and the colonel's driver was in my same barracks just a couple of bunks down and we were all broke on, you know, you know how that was in the yeah. military, you know, mm-hmm. you didn't get paid but once a month. And, and so we were all sitting around talking and, and he was telling me that he hadn't seen a black man until he was 16 years old. And I wow. went, are you kidding me? Oh my goodness. Wow. Did you live? Did you come wow. to town once a month on a wagon or what? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> my goodness. Crazy. And so that became like a melting pot. We had another mm-hmm. guy that he actually broke down one night in the barracks when we were all talking and started to cry. He says, I don't know how I'm going to go back home. I said, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. He says, man, I come from a family of rednecks. Mm. And he says, and I've been with you guys, and I see you know different than I am. So how am I going to go back home to all of that hatred? I said, Yeah, I feel for you. You know, I, I don't have an answer for you, but I feel for you. You know, you you can always don't have to go back home unless you choose to. You know. Yeah, so, absolutely. Wow, that that is that that's that is incredible. Now you say you had a military background, and you know you had you know that great you know that great upbringing, and even though you you know the racism thing kind of threw you off. Uh, what what was some you know what one of the most challenging times where you had a crisis and you had to kind of lead yourself through it? Well, you know, it was it was so strange um, because you know I went in through the induction center in Brooklyn and took my basic training down at Fort Jackson, South Carolina, and then I went to Fort Rucker, Alabama, and uh, it was one of those times down in Fort Rucker that. Um, I really saw uh, some of the racism that still existed. Now, I went in the service in 1968. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it wasn't, you know, that was, it was still kind of thick. Yeah. Um, but I remember there were two uh, two white guys that, that came into our base, and they were part of the National Guard, and they were there for their training. Mm-hmm. And one of them had a car. And I'll never forget it. They were from Pennsylvania. So we kind of hit it off, and the three of us decided that we were going to go uh, to Dotham, Alabama, and just kind of kick around and whatnot. And uh, <laughs> on the way there, we decided to stop at a little hamburger place. Right. And that was the first time in my life I had ever seen three bathrooms. <laughs> right, right, yeah. You're like, what is that about? Right. Yeah, so we, you know, when the guy looked at us real funny, you know, when we came in there, and uh, of course now the, the hair on the back of my neck is sticking up because I'm, mm. I'm kind of looking around going like, okay, I know one exit, we just came through the entrance and that's also an exit, but I'm looking at other ways that we have to bail out of here. That's right, exactly. <laughs> Get up out of there. <laughs> one of the guys uh, that, in fact, there was a guy that owned the car, he got up to go to the bathroom and the, and the guy behind the counter started yelling, he said, you can't go there. And when I looked, he was using the bathroom that said colored. Mm. He purposely was going in there. Yeah. And he said, in his tracks and turned around and came back, leaned on the counter, looked that guy square in the eye, says, do you know, uh, we uh, are from the army base and we have, you know, 100,000 soldiers here. We will bring them back and reduce this place to toothpicks. Mm-hmm. We don't want no trouble. He served us our food and uh, we went on about our business. Now we mm-hmm. get up to Dothan and of course now I'm going like, okay, this is going to be a real bad wasted trip. Right. Up to Dothan, it was totally different. We went into a restaurant. There was no 
noticeability of color or anything else like that. So I'm going like, wow, there's just pockets. That's something. You know, uh, uh, different things. And yeah. so um, in, in Fort Rucker, I became a helicopter uh, mechanic. Mm-hmm. And so they told me when I hit Fort Rucker that, you know, about six months or so after I finished all my mechanical training that uh, would be uh, probably sent out to uh, Fort Carson, Colorado, and then I'd have some desert training, then I'd be going overseas. Right. My mom was sick, and somebody, I was sitting in the barracks one day, and, and somebody said, well, you need to write your congressman to see if you can get close to the home. Mm. So I did that. I wrote a letter to my congressman, I don't even remember who it was, and and uh, waited, and never got a response, but the one thing I did notice after a while was, I had buddies in my barracks that went to Vietnam and came back, and I was still sitting. Wow. So when I left uh, Fort Rucker, Alabama, went to Fort Carson, Colorado. Now, mind you, I had a, a 36-month active duty and three years inactive. Mm. And for 30 months, I sat on Fort Carson, Colorado until I ets Wow. 30 months. 30 months in that one place. And, and no one could believe that. But what I found out later on after I got out of the service, they said, well, the reason you were never sent overseas and the reason you were never transferred was basically because of the Sullivan Law. I think it was in the Second World War in the Navy, there were five Sullivan brothers. They all belonged to the Navy and they were all killed. Oh. And so Congress passed the Sullivan Law that that the, the only male child could not be uh, sent into a uh, battle zone. I heard and of that I law a while back. I did hear about that long. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I, I went to school with two twin brothers, and they went into the Army. And, and later on, I found out that if one was in Vietnam, they would, uh, if both of them wound up in Vietnam, they would pull one out, send him to Germany on R&R, and then they would swap them back and forth. But they would not allow both of them to be in Combat at the same time. Gotcha. Okay. All right. That's the Sullivan Law. Wow. Man, you talking about really and and for for years after that, I felt real guilty because you know, people would come back and people I knew or whatnot would tell me about what it was like over in Vietnam, because you know, that was the Vietnam era. Mm -hmm. And uh all I did was sit on Fort Carson, Colorado. Right. Man, I now one of the things that I learned real quick was, you know, when I wound up enlisting, and that's a whole long story, we don't have time for it, but mm-hmm. anyway, I wound up enlisting and chose, you know, the helicopter mechanic field. And so when I got out, my grandfather had gotten me and my two cousins in uh, the motion picture, picture laboratory uh, technicians union. My mm-hmm. grandfather, the only job he ever had from the time he graduated high school to the time he uh, retired was uh, at 20th Century Fox. He was a developer of the film. Okay. And so he got me and my two cousins uh, in the union. Now, my two cousins, they went to work for Deluxe Labs. I went to work for a smaller company called Movie Lab. Okay. Um, and that's where I was doing my machinist trade and everything else. Uh, you know, but when I first got out of the military and I went home, my father kept saying, well, why don't you call up JFK, you know, and see if you can get a job down there. You got, you know, you're a helicopter. Yep. And I said, yeah, 
because I had the option of going back to my old job. I had taken a military leave of absence. Okay. I got to thinking, I said, well, you know, Pop, you make some sense there. So I called up JFK and I gave him my background and whatnot. And the guy goes, well, that's pretty good, but you got to go to school. I said, uh, excuse me, you didn't hear what I said. Uh-huh. Then they had done that, right? Well, yep. I got this rude awakening. The rude awakening was, well, you've been trained for combat. Uh-huh. And I said, what about all my knowledge? He said, well, you just know better than the rest of the class is going, but you got to go through school. And I said, wow. well, what can I do? Mm. It was like 18 to 24 month waiting list. I went back to my old job, needless to say. Oh, I bet you did. <laughs> You're like, wait a minute. I can't wait that long. <laughs> wow. So it was one of those things. And, and the funny thing about it is when my last six months in the Army, they had a program called Project Transition. Mm-hmm. And so some of the tank drivers, they were going downtown and learning how to, you know, operate bulldozers and heavy equipment. So I kind of hot footed into the orderly room and went to my first sergeant and said, I want to sign up for Project Transition. He said, you can't. I said, what do you mean I can't, Top? I'm short. You know, he goes, no, 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 your MOS is too high. Mm. But it didn't transfer outside on into civilian life. So that's one of the big lies they tell going in oh yeah you're gonna get a you you get a career yeah if mm-hmm. you stay in the military that's right but you, it doesn't transfer when you come out in the civilian life that's <laughs> oh yeah so you don't have a career when you get out <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah, I yeah. To become a helicopter pilot yeah and when i was down at fort rucker because that's where they trained the pilots and I was in the in the PX one day talking to a buddy of mine. There were two warrant officers there, and I was talking about. I said, "Yeah, I think I'll just go ahead and sign up and become a pilot." Man, that warrant officer almost gave himself whiplash. He turned around so fast. He said, "You don't want to do that." I said, "What are you talking about?" He says, "How long you been in?" I said, "About nine months." He said, "Well, that goes out the window." He said, "The only thing that account for is time and grade." And he says, "Now you're going to have about twelve months." Um, in school, I said, okay. And then he says, after you finish your 12 months in flight school, then, you know, you start your commitment, which is six years. I said, well, that's not, you know, the greatest, but I still don't see any heavy deterrent yet. And he Uh says, but after your six years, if they still need you, you don't, they don't have to release you. Uh I said, oh. So now that was that was the first thing that kind of piqued my attention. But the next thing he told me, he said, look, I've got a buddy that, that is over in Nam. He's a pilot and he's been in the air more than he's been on the ground. He says he's got 10,000 flying hours. Right. And so when he got out of the Army. He went to a company that specialized, you know, like. You know, you because you're from back east, all those old factories with the tall chimneys. Yes, with, yes, yep. So what they would do to have maintenance on those chimneys is they would have a helicopter with a platform attached to it, and they would fly the guys up to the top of the chimney and then land and wait for them to finish to go back up and pick them up. And so that's what he applied for. You know what they told him? They would only take 10% of his flying hours. So out of 10,000 hours, he had a a 1,000 hours. It takes you 900 hours in civilian life to get a helicopter license. Woo, 900 hours. Whoa, my goodness. You know, and they said that was combat time. Uh So the only thing, the only pilots that can really transition um, almost straight into civilian life 
is a Navy pilot. Because wow. what, what is what is civilians going to tell if you can land a jet aircraft on an air, aircraft carrier? <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Oh my goodness. Mm, mm, mm. That is something. So some, some, you know, some wake up calls. So, like I said, I've had various, you know, different careers, and they just seem to. I, I never was a job hopper, but okay. it just seemed things would just dry up. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it would just dry up. In fact, like I, I thought I was going to retire as a machinist at the movie lab, and then um, that's when you know everybody used to go to the movies, and then VHS came out. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Just came out, the movie crowd started thinning out. Staying home, out. right? <laughs> you know, we got we got you know streaming everything. Else. Yeah, we got streaming everything now. I know it's like it's like it's almost like every every single uh, every ten years, there's something that creates a disruption, a, a, a some type of disruption, right? It's called disruption. Yeah. And uh, speaking of the, the disruption, that's why I I love this this topic about you know leading through a crisis because sometimes sometimes bad things come out of a crisis and leaders uh they are really really defined um in a crisis whether they're a good leader or a bad leader why why do you think crises make it easier uh to distinguish between good and bad leaders because really what it causes you to do is go deep inside it, it a crisis really exposes your raw character okay you know you can you can put on a good front and you can you know like we used to say in, in legal shields, sometimes you fake it until you make it. Yeah, yeah. Yep. But a crisis, you can't fake it until you make it. You don't have time to fake it. Right, right. So what it does is, and and I think crisis gets you to your core. Mm -hmm. So in other words, usually a good person, a person that does good crisis management mm -hmm. is a person that's willing to put some others before themselves. Right, right. That makes sense. And so you, you can learn the skills, whatever skill is needed to overcome that crisis. But if you don't have that core stability within yourself, then you really don't make a good crisis leader because then all of a sudden you start thinking how you can survive and how you can use others to survive. But when you have that core within you that you generally look out for other people, then that's where you start to make better decisions because the decisions you're making is not about you, but it's about others. That's about others. And that's, that's, that's the, I think that's the most important thing. So as, as a pastor, how have you um, implemented that as far as the people that, 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 that you lead uh, when there's something happens, typically everybody want to come to you. Everybody wants you to give them the answer. Um, how, how have you dealt with a situation in the crisis, even with the people you lead in church? The first thing I always do, Fred, is is be real. Mm -hmm. So so when when things happen, I'm saying, yeah, I'm upset. I said, first of all, you need to understand, just because I'm a pastor, don't mean I'm not I'm some kind of superhuman. Right. And and it doesn't always mean that I have the answers to every dilemma that comes about. Sometimes I have to go and ask for help. So I said, never be afraid to ask for help. Yes. I said, but you have to be willing to understand and be transparent see that's what gives people comfort because when you when you try to give the impression as a pastor that you're some kind of superhuman mm -hmm. then anytime you really get stressed to the point where you break then people are not willing to follow you any longer yeah 
True. They had such high expectations of you, and now you you failed them and let them down. It could be something even minor. Uh -huh. So I used to tell people, I said, you know, if you catch me on a bad day, you you're gonna see me angry. You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. You're human. That's right. Exactly. And so I used to tell people, I said, look, first of all, let's slow ourselves down. Uh -huh. What does the Bible say about this? So I said, the first thing that happens in a crisis is many times we'll discover that's a test of our faith. Mm -hmm. We see, we can tout scriptures all the time, but when, when, you know, rubber meets the road, do you really believe in that text? And then the text will tell you to wait on the Lord and you're going like, well, you know, I said, yeah, we live in a shake and bake society. So yeah. after we waited 30 seconds, we figured something <laughs> Exactly. It's true. <laughs> yes, so we're in a microwave society. Yeah, I tell people all the time, I says, you know, like the Bible tells us that uh, the Lord always answers prayer. Mm -hmm. And I said, now, we never have a problem with yes. I said, now, we we pout when we hear no. But I said, the one thing that runs us up a wall is when he says wait, because mm -hmm. he doesn't say wait. Right. He just doesn't answer. He doesn't say anything. So now, all of a sudden, you start to wonder what is going on and i said if we're not careful we can get like abraham and sarah and take matters in our own hands jump in front of it yeah you know <laughs> rather than right 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 exactly oh and, my and god so it's, it's those kinds of things i try to always use the scripture and apply it mm -hmm. and i'm saying now listen to the scripture don't necessarily listen to me or look at me because i said many times depending on how the crisis is i'm trying to apply the same scripture i'm telling you to apply mm -hmm. so i always try to be real and honest with people yeah. i'll never try to push myself and present myself as a as some kind of a superhuman yeah because the bible says you know that the lord will exalt you so you don't need to go around thumping your chest yeah. you know trying to be more than you are because sooner or later people will peep your whole card as we used to say you know and, and, <laughs> yeah they'll figure it out yeah yeah, it, it, it'll all come out. So, mm -hmm. you know, especially like when this pandemic hit. Yeah. You know, members, you know, I'd be like, we're a small church, we're, you know, young church. And so they were saying, Pastor, what we got to do? And I said, well, first of all, we need to protect ourselves. Yes. And I said, so when the CDC says wear a mask, wear a mask. Mm -hmm. When it says wash your hands, wash your hands. Yeah. I said, well, you really stop to think about it. I said, really, what they're telling us is common sense. Mm hmm. You know what I'm saying? So, yes, right. so they said we should have been doing this. Yeah, yeah. And I'm saying, <laughs> they said, is this God's judgment? I said, I really can't tell you that. And they yeah. said, What do you mean? I said, Well, I said, you know, I've always told you that God is like Burger King. He'll let you have it your way. Your way, sure will. Mm -hmm. And I years now we've taken prayer out of school. We don't want to have any prayer at our commencement uh, exercises. Uh, I said we've had trouble where. You, for years, you couldn't say Merry Christmas. Yeah. You know, that was intense. And I said, the thing that I struggle with is our nation is founded on Judeo-Christian principles, but yet and still, now I said, it, and I said, and I always kind of say this facetiously, but I said, if you had a, you were on an acid test, I said, for those of you that have young children that are still in elementary school, as a senior child of school, with a t-shirt that says, I love Jesus. And I can almost guarantee you, depending on the area you live in, that they're gonna send your child back, tell him he needs to change his shirt because that's an offense. 
But then all of a sudden a child can go out the house with a four-letter word on a t-shirt mm-hmm. and get freedom of speech. My goodness. So I'm saying saying all that to say this. I said, I can't say that the pandemic is a, uh, a you know, a God is doing this, mm-hmm. but God is doing this. That's right. That's true. He is. I think he used it. I think he also used it to kind of reveal and shake up things. I, I don't think it's a judgment because if it was judgment, we would all we would we we, we, would take, we were singing a whole different tune because the Bible clearly spells out what judgment is. Uh, but I do believe um, that it, it it gets to the point where when we get to a point where we think we own everything, God has a way of being able to, like you say, allowing things to happen just to get our attention. I really believe that you know. Uh, from the so government all the way down, you know, and uh, and these are the times like during these times that even though, you know, you know of course, we're not going to negate the fact that some people lost their lives and we're praying that we keep, you know, you know, we do what we got to do and we're going to pray for them families who lost someone because that's the worst thing that could ever happen. But there's amazing how many people are making have made changes in their life, whether it's spending more time with their family, uh, whether it's learning something different they didn't know before. And you know, churches are pivoting you know, to be able to use use a technology that maybe they didn't they 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 weren't uh, to, you know open to use. Uh, it's just just amazing how things are being able to change. And I believe there's also going to be some 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 good things that come out of this as well. It's going to change us because it's never going to go back to normal. I do believe that. There's no more no, back to normal. We got a new norm now. We got and, a new normal know, I, now. <laughs> I tell people all the time, I said, you know, to your point is um, there's always a blessing in disguise. Yeah. And I said, now, you know, I, like I said, I've been on a, on a radio program for about 10, 12 years. I've had a, a podcast that sometimes I almost forget about uh, that's been around for about eight years. Okay. But I said I never really was into Zoom. I was never really into live streaming. Yeah. I said, but over the years, I've taught myself how to edit, how to produce. Nice, you know? nice, yes, said, yes, you know? yes. Yeah, we're having church online. I said, yeah, I missed the physical contact, but I said this is also an opportunity now. I said, I, in fact, I said it this way. I said I'm almost going to be somewhat disappointed when we go back into our buildings. And they said, what do you mean, Pastor? I said. Been on a Sunday morning, and I can listen to four, five, six, seven, eight. Sermons. Oh my goodness! Tell me about it. <laughs> you know, exactly. When you go back into your own respective place of worship, you just don't hear me. It is it. It's just you and your message, you know. Because <laughs> you learn. Absolutely, absolutely. So I want to go ahead. I want to. I want to go ahead. Absolutely, and the change is definitely here. I want to go ahead and wrap up here. If you could, uh, if someone is interested in being able to uh, learn, if they're either going through a crisis right now, or um, maybe maybe they just came out of one, or maybe they have some some issues with with self image, uh, what kind of advice could you give them to help them through? If they're going through a crisis, the first thing is, if they do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, they need to do that. But then I also tell them, don't look at at God as a magic bullet or a magic wand, a silver bullet or a magic wand, you know, because a lot of times life doesn't make sense. Mm. You know, I I can tell you times where young couples have come in and, and, you know, baby has died just after several days of being birthed. And they're looking wow. at me saying, why? And I'm going like, I can't tell you why. Yeah, I yeah. said, the only, only thing I can give you 
And I said, I know this is not going to give you great solace and comfort, but we live in a fallen world. Yes. And because we live in a fallen world, this is the outcome. Yes. So if you can walk away with anything, it's the greater need for God, because without God, life doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Mm-hmm. You, you don't choose your parents. You don't choose your ethnicities. You don't choose anything. You just wind up here. And then you don't even determine the amount of time you're going to spend here. So without God, life doesn't, to me, doesn't make sense. So anytime somebody goes through a crisis, the first thing I try to do is get them Christ-centered. You got to find out what their worldview is. Because without knowing what their worldview is, it doesn't mean that that I'm going to sit down and evangelize everybody that comes comes in contact with us in a state of a crisis. Because, again... You know, timing is everything. If they're not, you know, they just lost a loved one or someone, to use this example, uh, someone is in the hospital that's on on a respirator, you know, Mm -hmm. and they don't think they're going to make it. um, They don't want to hear a sermon. Right, right. And not, not it's true. Right. They don't want to hear a sermon. So what I've learned, Fred, is you got to take biblical principles and break them down into uh, kind of... um, I hate to use this term, but but for example, kind of a worldly uh, uh, point, you know. Um, so you you have to be able to apply the word of God without sounding biblical. Biblical, that makes yes, sense. yes, yes, more practical. Yeah, you yep, got to. Yep. The Bible is very practical. The Bible mm-hmm. is so practical. It's a book mm-hmm. on practicality. Yep. You know, so so that that's what I try to do. I try to give people practical understanding that sometimes you may be in a situation that doesn't make sense. I said, now that's not comfortable. You know, you're not going to be able to lay your head on that pillow at night and say, okay, but at least it gives you some kind of understanding that some things are just outside of your control. That's right. Because we become control freaks in our lives. We think we can control everything. Sometimes we have to have that rude awakening that Sometimes things are just outside of our control, no matter how hard you tried, no matter how good you've been. Since bad stuff does happen to good people. Yeah, that's true. That does. And now that you said that, I now remember that I do remember your name because I've been with Legal Shield 19 years myself. So that's that's also what I remember. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's awesome. That's that's really awesome. So if people wanted to get a hold of your podcast and your radio show, you know, how, how can they get a hold of your podcast? Or and also if there's somebody's in the Phoenix, uh, Arizona area, and uh, they want to be able to if you go to Family Values Radio, okay, uh, and look under that podcast uh, theme, you can find me. That's the radio. It's uh, you know I, I broadcast uh, four o'clock to four fifteen on on Sunday afternoons. But okay, if you look under the podcast, touching hearts and changing lives. You can find it there. Okay. Um, on uh, I'm on uh, Spotify. Okay. It's words and and the number uh, four for life's issues. Okay. Words for life's issues. I've been doing a lot of. That's fairly new. I got a you know a few uh, programs up there, but I've been kind of dealing with this thing on racism and yeah, good. And, the crisis that we're in so absolutely well, that's good i also update the show notes for you guys that are tuning in uh, to get that information as well and give some information about they wanted to check out your church uh maybe to tune in things of that nature how they get it yeah on sunday um sunday after sunday morning at 11 a.m 
if you go to Crystal Fountain Facebook Live, you you can catch my messages there. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you for being on the show, brother. I appreciate you so much, Pastor, and I really, really appreciate this conversation we had today. I got I got to learn about you and got to learn that we we have been connected for a while. <laughs> All right. And definitely, definitely, you guys are tuned in to this Time to Lead podcast where leaders come together to grow and get better. I'm your host, Fred Fitzgiles, and it's been a pleasure to be with Pastor Ali Holmes here today. And thank you for uh, for tuning in. You guys have a great time. And don't forget that your success is my passion. It's time to lead ourselves because you can't lead others until you learn how to lead yourself. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you, Fred. All right, I'll talk to you soon. All right, you got it. Do you have what it takes to be an effective leader? Do you wonder whether your leadership style is working in your favor and actually helping to motivate and inspire your team? So often, people in leadership roles think that with a title comes influence. But in reality, leaders need to work in order to gain the respect and loyalty of the team they're leading. So join us on April 17th from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. online with our two-hour virtual workshop my goal for this experience for you is to help you to recognize that becoming a person of influence and developing the leader within you is within your reach some of the topics you can expect to learn more about include leading yourself first strategies to build confidence in yourself risk-taking for success transformational servant leadership and how businesses benefit from personal growth and so much more click below this is an event that you do not want to miss